Are we live? Yes, we are. We're live. You are live. So how you doing yeah. now? I'm good. Your office is looking better and better. I know. I, thank you. Yes. I'm, I'm glad we finally got, uh, I got some carpet in here, which you can barely see. Wow. I, uh, oh, wow. Yeah. Look at that. Carpet, better carpet. I had carpet, yeah. but it was just like, it was probably two decades old. Wow. Um, yeah, it was a white, a white empty room. And then it went yeah. to like part of it was, um, you know, had a little bit of brick and looked kind of like a Shawshank cell. Yeah. And now it actually looks like a, uh, yeah, it's great. looks like an actual office. It's fantastic. Well, we had, we had the, uh, the, I liked the brick. We were ter We were actually just planning on painting and I was stripping away at the plaster, you know, like the, um, bubbled up paint and oh, it just started stripping. Okay. All, it went all the way down to the plaster and then yeah. it started like crumbling. I thought, oh, oh this wow. isn't good. And this whole wall is going to have to be replastered. Um, and then as I was like chipping it off altogether, the brick was looking cool. So I just went with it. I like, Anyways, I like it. It's different. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, it adds some change into the office and then I don't have to uh, paint that whole side of the wall. So it's really just because I'm lazy. Yeah, you are lazy. That's why. That's why I want to yeah. work with you. Because <laughs> I'm, I, <laughs> I don't have to put too much pressure on myself. That's right. <laughs> no, you're not late. I remember you working really hard at First Press. I remember that. I remember uh, uh, that was like hard the only way. I, honestly, that was the only way I could keep up. Everyone else was so much smarter. I had to had to study twice as hard and and uh, prove myself. But that's just that's oh, just my own insecurities, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I actually had a dream about Nick Reed uh, last night. It was just kind of weird. Oh, wow. Nick, if Nick, if you're watching, hello. Yeah, yeah I had sure a dream that he wasn't wearing his mask. He was by himself, and then I waved <laughs> at him. Uh, Nick Reed, folks, is uh, somebody that we went to school with, um, and he went on to Oxford. He was one of the yeah. very smart ones. One our, of the very bright ones. Yeah. And now as a professor. At right, RCS, he, Orlando. RCS Orlando, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. So very cool. I see him every once in a while. We run into each other at Twin Lakes Fellowship in Jackson, Mississippi, which got canceled last year, but they're planning on doing it this year. Oh. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that, catching up with folks. I would love to go there. Maybe I'll fly down there again. Maybe we could all catch up. That'd be kind of fun. It, it would be good. All right. So we got a plan. Yes, and, we do. We uh, not a, a lot of time. We gotta, we're trying no. to keep, keep this a bit shorter because Peter's got to run, but- I gotta go to CrossFit. Is, uh, I have to go to CrossFit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah priorities sorry, sorry sorry babe you're listening Good way to get that i do have there. to run but you know we also i i like this because we're gonna be doing a book review but you you yeah. jump right ahead yeah if you want to tell the audience what we're what we're well we just plan on taking this book um cynical theories which we've talked briefly about i think we've we've at least mentioned yeah. that it's got a <clears throat> a lot of good information uh yeah. i think it was one best one of the best books of last year mm -hmm. top top three in my book, uh, in my opinion. Um, the other, I, I really, really like gentle and lowly as a <clears throat> kind of a devotional. Uh, but anyways, this was much more kind of cultural analysis, understanding the times. And, but what I, what I really want to do as, you know, kind of what would be unique because other, we could just tell people read the book. It's excellent. And you'll get a lot from it. But I think by reviewing it, analyzing it, and also applying it to our practices, like you're going to apply it in the way that, that you, you know, this has helped you. Um, or just, I guess how, for instance, today we'll talk about postmodernism, how that impacts your practice and then how it impacts 
my uh, pastoral ministry. Um, I think that's going to be the angle that, that makes it a little more interesting than just a straight review and an explanation of what we've read, but excellent book. I do encourage everyone to, to get a copy of it and read it. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So the, the, the opening and I'll let, and I'll let you uh, answer these opening questions, but like, just think through what is the, it has an introduction where they, they focus on um, kind of bringing and connecting uh, the ideas of social justice to critical theory. Hmm. Uh, and it really, I think that was kind of the emphasis here. So they, their goal is to address critical theories, which they call cynical theories. Um, mm-hmm. And they're, and, and kind of the vehicle by which uh, critical theories is being seen in today's culture is through the social justice movement. Anything on the introduction that kind of stood out to you before we get to chapter one, which is on postmodernism? Uh, yeah, no, I think it's probably just good to just, you know, um, to say that a lot of the stuff that we're dealing with right now, um, is, it's very easy to get lost in a huge mess because when you're, when you are talking to somebody who may be of a different skin color and they get really upset with you because you may disagree with them and they say, well, you're denying my lived experience. Um, that's a pretty common objection. Um, you know, it's, and then immediately that kind of shuts you up pretty quickly because it almost sounds like you're being pretty, uh, oppressive or maybe you're causing a, you're triggering them or you're, you're, uh, denying their ability to see reality, um, from their perspective. It seems very invalidating. I remember when I first, you know, came across it, 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 it feels like it lacks compassion. A lot of compassion. And as a therapist, I'm pretty sensitive to that. So that's why I think I struggled with it in the very beginning. Like whenever I would hear uh, dialogue on the other side, uh, that was usually the objection if I had maybe had some questions or maybe if I disagreed. So I think he just kind of sets this tone on where these ideas came from. Um, A few years ago, R.C. Sproul wrote this really good book that got me into philosophy called Consequences of Ideas. And it had a real Mm. profound influence on me that I you know, there are ideas that still have consequences, whether we accept them or not in our culture that have been around for a long time that we say that we are part of that we hear. And it's good to just kind of settle down a little bit and just ask the question, where did these ideas come from? What, you know, why is this person saying you're denying my lived experience? Hmm. Uh, Where did that start? It, it, you know, and, and they just kind of set the tone that we, we didn't grow up in a vacuum. Our society has long history of philosophies that have integrated in the academia, um, especially, and has uh, trickled down to the church, trickled down to uh, the American Psychological Association, you, you name it, and has, is very, very uh, uh, ubiquitous, or, you know, uh, it's, it's inured in our culture. And so I, I think that we would like to spend the next few weeks just kind of uh, equipping um, all of you and ourselves uh, while we, uh, you know, dialogue with people that on these very complex topics. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's really, I think they, they lay out their, the goal, the authors lay out their goal of, um, I think what you're already getting into kind of the, uh, the impact that postmodernism has had for sure. Uh, but the, I, their goal was to simply guide, um, 
the language and customs of this whole social justice movement, understanding the uh, critical theory that is undergirding it, even if those who advocate for these things don't understand that it's critical theory, right? Because, um, and I think <clears throat> I was listening to an episode uh, by John, Har John Harris of Conversations That Matter, where he was um, being interviewed about his book. It's actually on Ars Politica, which is another podcast I'd recommend you guys check out, Stephen Wolf and uh, Thomas something. I'm not sure the other guy, but uh, anyways, he, they have an interview with John Harris where they're talking about John's book, um, Biblical, or no, so Social Justice Goes to Church. And he's talking about just the um, kind of how, how social justice um, it, it's, it's, uh, I, I lost my train of thought <laughs> for a second. Oh, yeah. um, it's it just the, the goal of, uh, uh, or just, I guess how social justice has, um, has crept into the church without people realizing it. That was where I was going. Yeah. Because they, yeah, because they, right. they they're like, I'm not a Marxist. I've never even read Marx. <laughs> you mm. know, how can I be a Marxist? Or I've never read any critical theory, any anything by these theorists, these French um, philosophers. Never read Lyotard or Foucault uh, or Derrida. So how can I be a uh, critical theorist? You know, I, they don't even know what that is. And yet it's undergirding the academia world. It's undergirding, um, you know, the the media, the portrayal of reality. I mean, it's like, it's undergirding society right now. And that's, I think where, what they're saying is we really need to get a handle on the, the language that's used as well as kind of the, um, you know, the, um, the, the various symbols that represent uh, critical theory. So I, I, yeah. I think it's, it's really, really an important read for everyone and for Christians in particular, because we seem to be uh, sort of naive. We, we listen to what someone says and, and we immediately want to accept it. And it's sort of, you know, it comes kind of from the idea of listening to someone's testimony and wanting to, wanting to be compassionate and listen to that. But it's like, if that is, if their testimony, if they're interpreting their testimony mm. with faulty, uh, with a faulty worldview, then that is, that needs to be corrected, yeah. not just heard. And you've talked about that a little bit. Some of your mm -hmm. counseling, like the best things you can do is actually just speak truth. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 Or at least guide them in that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. 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 Right. Well, I mean, I, I don't mind jumping right into chapter one if you want, or yeah, if you, let's yeah, it. let's go ahead and do that. Cause we could, we could at least implement or, in a, you know, go back to the introduction a little, uh, a little bit, but I mean, I, I think it's good that when we talk about social justice, for example, that is a very packed word. And what do people mean by that? And um, so a good example of that would be racism. Uh, we've we've had some discussions. Our, our last discussion was with Monique. You know, when, when people say something like racism or justice, what do they mean by that? Um, and it really kind of comes from this new movement, when it's, which is rooted in postmodernism. So let's just go ahead and define what postmodernism is. I mean, uh, you know, so he, he, there are two really good definitions here, but I think I'm going to go to the second one that he gives, um, because I think there are four things that we want to be looking at in the next few weeks. Number one, postmodernism is basically a breakdown of the social construction of the concept of the self. So in other words, there is no sovereignty of the individual. It's much more focused on group dynamics. So that's why you would have, um, 
LGBTQ is a good example of that. And usually people will have, as a social justice advocate, the assumption that they're speaking for the whole group of people. So that's one of the reasons why the intensity of the emotion tends to be so high and extreme is because I am representing a group. It's no longer what I'm representing for myself or why that bothers me, but I am representing a group. And what you're doing if you're disagreeing is not just disagreeing with me, but all black people or all lesbians or all gay people. You know, right. The second thing is that it's relativism from a moral and ethical discourse. And so morality is not found, but made. And morality is not based on cultural religious tradition. It's not in like the mandate of heaven, for example, but it's just constructed by dialogue and choice. That's really what it is. So it's very relativistic. In other words, relativistic um, in the mean, what I mean by that, it's, um, it's uh, every group for itself makes up its own truth's claims. So I have no right. And that's one of the reasons why you won't hear a lot of people on, this, on, the, on the far left criticize radical Islam, for example. They're very uncomfortable with that right. in Iraq or Iran, even though they're committing like circumcision to young young girls because it's their own truth. Um, so I can't necessarily go over there and tell them how to live. The third thing is deconstruction in art and culture. And maybe this next in the next episode we could show some we could show some uh, examples of how art looks like, but I would just encourage you to look at art. I'm actually, I actually teach art at Endicott. And um, one of the things I like to do is I like to look, look to, you could actually look at art history um, from like the Renaissance and just compare that to art history in the past 30 or 40 years. You can go to the modern art museum, which is radically different from the historic art museum because things are much more looked at their um, modern art is going to be looking at a mixture of high and low culture. Um, and then the fourth thing is that postmodernism really kind of looks at globalizations, that globalization mm -hmm. that people see borders of all kinds as social constructions um, that could be crossed and, and reconstructed and are inclined to take their tribal norms less seriously. Um, and so all, you, you know, so they want to break down the boundaries, in other words. So it's, it's good to and, just define that. But go ahead. Yes. Yeah. No, briefly on that. Sorry. The, the yeah. idea of globalization is an attack on any sense of nationalism, right? Any sense of appreciation or pride in your place, the place that you're, you are. Uh, there's there's a push against that and a, re a recognition that we need to be we need to be thinking globally here about everything. So, of course, why are we putting up a wall? We don't need a wall. Why would why would we have borders? Uh, why would we have any kind of uh, you know we we want to tear all that stuff down? So it's it definitely has political implications here. Some of some of the concepts he brought up. The um, I think there's also some value in considering the previous definition because those are the four categories that like I sure. think are yeah. No, yeah, go ahead. yeah, if you want to read that, I mean, you do have the definition from the Encyclopedia Britannica, which is just succinct and and um, gets at a lot of the uh, other aspects that may not have been uh, easily understood in those four categories. But a late 20th century movement characterized by broad skepticism, subjectivism, or relativism, a general suspicion of reason, and an acute sensitivity to the role of ideology in asserting and maintaining political and economic power. So really, it's, it's, a, it's an overthrow of everything, right? It's skepticism about everything. It's it's a subjective view of reality uh, that's based upon the cultural or the community context in which you're in uh, that defines it. And there's a constant desire to push back against the controlling narrative 
that's in power because that's what defines power is the narrative or the story that is describing, you know, uh, our current state or, or history. Um, and so there's this constant desire to deconstruct it, right? Deconstruction yeah. is a postmodern idea, postmodernism. Uh, so, so the, this goal is to constantly push back against the major narrative so that another one can come up and that, and that's how you prioritize the views of those who are in the minority. And right? mm. so there's a constant desire to kind of, sh- uh, elevate minority views which are oppressed by the major narrative the meta narrative that needs to be deconstructed but then what happens when that major narrative is replaced by the next one well that this one now needs to be deconstructed right this was kind of uh, the goal is to constantly be deconstructing which we saw that in much of the view of um even the our review of color of compromise Right, Jamar Tisby and, and this concept of racism never really going away, always being present and just constant. It's a constant thing. You have to fight it all the time because another narrative is just going to insert its own view of racism and it's going to just tweak it somewhat. And the only way to get a little bit closer to justice or a just society is to replace that one with a with another one. That makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and also I would add too that it's a form of that's what was really well said. I mean, I I think it's also a form of cynicism, even more so than sure. skepticism. And I like the word he uses because cynical is like I'm kind of disgusted yeah. with something, and I'm I'm cynical is also a place of like severe. Huh, probably a lot of people in our country right now are maybe feeling cynical after what happened to our the attack oh, of our capital, because sure. um, it's like the things that I once believed it's a form of cognitive bias is being attacked. And so, you know, postmodernism was, I have so I have a lot of compassion for it because it came out right after world war two and you right. have 6 million Jews that were just, uh, killed in the Holocaust. You have um, a lot of people that were very uh, um, kind of, especially leftists who were, who were um, oppressed by the communist regime, but they still liked the idea of communism. So then they hid in the academia and then you have a lot of people that have these huge meta narratives or saw were under these huge meta narratives, communism, Nazism, nationalism, and all of those really kind of broke apart. And so yeah. people that grew, they were very cynical of these huge meta narratives because it caused so much oppression. And so they built these what they I, I think, you know, what they decided to do is to go to the next step, which is look at plurality and Mm-hmm. to try to allow contradiction, <laughs> to allow ambiguity, for example, rather than just strict dogma so that we yeah. can dialogue again. And um, postmodernism, I mean, I don't think you and I could ever define it properly because it's such sure. a broad term. You have you have, um, you have postmodernism, the Italian postmodernists versus the French postmodernists. But just for the sake of our audience, though, I think what the book really focuses on is maybe the more French approach that really wants to look at how yeah. knowledge and power, um, those two variants have can really cause a lot of destruction. So even today, moving on today, so a lot of our, a lot of the people that we may be reading about race or uh, I don't want to keep you know uh, sexuality, whatever it may be, they're going to be looking at the power structures and the hierarchy. So white privilege and, you know, this person's pretty, so all of that, there's going to, there's going to be an oppressor versus an oppressed and, and which that's usually where it, where it comes from, but it is, it's a skepticism of the objective reality. So anybody that says I have somehow objective truth, 
there's a huge suspicion. And it's been that way for really, really since the 19th, right after World War II, I would say. And that's, I would say that's kind of the roots of it. So, and it still carries on today. Yeah. And, uh, you know, one of the things you, you mentioned, you brought up because sort of the cynicism about um, everything right now because of what's happened in the last few days, um, cynicism about kind of our, our deeply held political beliefs, at least. Um, the, the idea, and this goes back to the introduction, but the authors talk about kind of the dismantlement of categories and yet in there, so there's this um, just a continuing changing of the, of the narrative, the, a changing of the, um, you know, the kind of what, what we're pushing for. There's, they call it the, the truth according to social justice. And so there's, you're literally going to replace one thing after the other, and it's going to be an ongoing tension. It's going to be a, and, and that tension exploded uh, in, the la, in the last few days, right? This, I don't think anyone should, should be shocked that the far right responded to the far left. <laughs> I mean, that, that was inevitable. I, I'm surprised it lasted this long. We literally went through riot after riot after riot of, from the BLM side of, you know, from the left. And then on the right, you finally get a reaction and whoa, um, like the world is falling. The world is crumbling because the right actually responded and did something similar to what the left has been doing. Now, I, I know people would say, but this was exaggerated. This was on the Capitol and this was, I agree, they're criminals. They shouldn't have done it. And I, and I don't think, I think that's the obvious thing. But the, the, the rea reality is we have ignored the riots for seven months or treated them as peaceful protests and then, and then when the right does it, it's like not allowed. So there's this, this rejection of non-discrimination of others. If that, if the people that are in power are the ones perpetuating the discrimination, right. Or the ones who are reacting. So this concept, you know, like what I'm saying is if the right does the rioting, it's bad. If the left does the rioting, it's understandable because they've been oppressed for so long. That's a fantastic point. And so this, point. Yeah. this rejection yeah. of of an objective reality is is what is what we're seeing. So, well, anyways, also, I, yeah, and also because well, you make a fantastic point, and the resistance also is well, you got you you all are in power, and you mm -hmm. are, which is a terrible place to stand. Which is um, not to diverge too much, but I almost wonder we're creating two different countries at this point. <laughs> and oh, we yeah. are in a lot of ways because you have two different realities. You have the 1619 project and the 1776. You have uh, a group of people that basically want to bring up socialism, defunding the police, whatnot, and all these kind of uh, really interesting breakdown of cultures to start all over again. Why? Because the root of the problem is, is, is flawed, is completely flawed. And so we can't ever get rid of the root of the problem until we totally start over. Um, and then we have the other side that says, no, actually traditions are good. Well, what's the assumption? The assumption is that even though traditions may have some bad things in their history, you still are, you still have this quote, correspondence theory of truth. And what I mean by that is that you still think that objective truth claims out there are possible. And so that's why people, um, who still want to uphold the constitution, they're doing so not saying that there's not 
um, that our history doesn't have some corruption in it, but it's the assumption that our constitution still has truth claims that we could still hold on to and adhere to regardless of our own subjective lived experiences. So I think this book is very, very pertinent. And that's a fantastic mm-hmm. point because it's, you're really cross, you're, you're passing one another um, because right there you have two totally different um, assumptions of reality, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and there, there is a lot of, a lot of these old postmodern philosophers did have this kind of strong assumption that the reality that we're seeing is almost like the matrix, what they call um, simulations, <laughs> almost like, you know, that these are, uh, and this is what Lakin was talking about, similarica, uh, the, that these are just like copies of the actual original. And so the reality is that what we, we can't necessarily, the reason why everything is just, we can't have truth is because the truth that we see has been long, is no longer possible. It's no longer accessible. Um, and, you know, it's funny that this, this, this kind of thing has been around ever since Augustine. Augustine is actually, he, I'm, I'm reading, um, I'm reading uh, Confessions right Confessions. now. And, yeah. And that was one of the main arguments that, that the Manai uh, were talking about, Manicheans. Mm-hmm. They believed that this kind of doceticism uh, that believed that evil was somehow out there or good was somehow out there and was not necessarily in the physical. And mm-hmm. so I think people are kind of, you know, we, we have the same kind of tendency of that, this, this, you know, that we can't attain truth. And so therefore truth has to be just what we find in our own lived experiences. So, I mean, I think that's, that's a fantastic point. It's a very, very good point we just made because you're you're really even if you're talking to somebody that has no um, has no foundation uh, understanding of philosophy, you're still getting people that are protesting. How dare you, as a white male, tell me as a um, you know as a woman or as a person of color that you have the right to protest, but I don't anyway, but yeah, anyway. Well, yeah. unless you're advocating for the minority, unless you're yeah. joining with the minority in that, because then you can have the right to even push back against like a conservative black man, <laughs> you know, you, your, your voice will be heard because you're pushing against the dominant narrative that they've adopted. Anyways, I, it's an interesting, um, I mean, I, I, I really, I think it helps to uh, kind of clarify uh, just the the foundations, even if people don't recognize that that's where they're coming from, um, because it has become kind of pervasive in society. Uh, one of the paragraphs I, I wanted to point out um, on page 25 at the bottom is he, he says, this reaction often took the form of pervasive pessimism. You, you kind of alluded to that, uh, the, this idea of cynicism. Uh, this pervasive pessimism that characterizes postmodern thinking fueling fears about human hubris on one hand and the loss of meaning and authenticity on the other. This despair was so pronounced that postmodernism itself could be characterized as a profound cultural crisis of confidence and authenticity alongside a growing distrust of liberal social orders, growing fears of the loss of meaning caused by rapid improvements in technology defined the era. So you've got two movements, kind of this growing pessimism and fear of the loss of meaning, as well as the advance in technology. And, um, and just, it created a crisis um, that really opened up uh, the possibilities of, of this philosophical movement um, that, that really caught, caught on because there, 
you know, like you said, they, they were recovering from world wars that were devastating to modernist thought because this was like fascism rose up out of kind of a Western civilization at that point. So the population, the pop, you know, uh, like a, the population allowed a fascist to take power and to do, to do what, what they did. And so that, yeah. that created this real kind of like our whole world is, is, is caving. Everything that we've, um, that we've held dear is, uh, has to be, re we have to reconsider it. It's a deconstruct it all. Uh, which is yeah which is impossible you know when you're right about it. So it, and, and the reason why i said that i, I love the word i love the, I, I, that's a that's a um great chapter and i think it is pertinent to right now i mean suicide rates among teenage girls is the highest it ever has been among men mm -hmm. um whenever i speak to a you know suicidal victim suicidal victims but uh, people who have attempted suicide at the hospital for example where i um i i've talked to a lot of people who've tried to attempt suicide and um mm -hmm. It's a very, very powerful moment and always has been for me because they have, in my opinion, sometimes they are on the verge of knowing so much more than most of us really do in the sense that there seems to be a disconnect to why I should keep going as I do when I have no underlining meaning to explain my actions. And I remember just getting in a conversation with a girl once and uh, she was just like, well, why shouldn't I die? Why shouldn't I commit suicide? And I didn't really have an answer for her at the time. I mean, because without trying to bring it back to Jesus, but I was just trying to do my job and trying to help her in the moment because I, you know, obviously I work at a secular um, university, not university, but a, but hospital. So I couldn't, you know, so I, I, what we offer in the, what we, what our culture offers by itself through the means of these kind of, uh, just pure individual or excuse me, mandates or not mandates, but just like these, that there's no, there's, there is no um, correspondence to something out there higher than herself, the transcendent. There is no transcendent. Hmm. It has it left. She asked a very good question. Well, you know, what else is there and why shouldn't I just keep going? And there, there really isn't an answer. And I think that's why Albert Camus even said that, you know, the, the hardest philosophical problem that I've ever had to face was why I shouldn't commit suicide. And yeah. so, you know, I think, I think there's a, there is a real despair, especially as technology gets greater and greater and greater. And we have the blurring of the individual in the, in this, in this mess, the blurring of boundaries, the power of language, um, the radical skepticism that's around us that, you know, uh, the inability to, to, to speak, to see everything in hierarchy and power structures, even though there's no meta narrative to, exp meta -narrative to explain where those powers or hierarchies um, come from or whether or not they're good or bad or why they should be torn, torn down. Hmm. I mean, that's the thing. It's like BLM just wants to tear down, but why? Why? What's the what's the underlining structure? Where are they getting that from? Who's telling them to do that? And are they going to replace it with something greater? And if not, with what? You know, why why should well, we why, why should we trust that? And so, yeah, it just keeps us going in an ongoing search of chaos, basically, which brings on the good question of despair, because despair is a real human emotion that we should feel when everything falls apart. It is a natural philosophical response. You can't tell people not to feel. They have to, you have to feel despair if your whole world is falling apart or go, or go, go toward hedonism. Those right. are really the only two solutions when you're in total chaos. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the only functions that I've seen psychologically that people have to go to in order for them to quote, get better, to cope with Mm. it is utter despair Mm. or hedonism or, you know, or, and, and it's, it, it bring it or naivete, you know, it just Mm. pure naivete and just kind of doing this. Um, Yeah. Try to be indifferent. Yeah. And I'm sure there's another option. I'm probably not, you know, I'd love to hear from the audience if you think there are. But that's the practical, that's like your Mm -hmm. practical experience in terms of how how people Mm are um, reacting. But I, yeah, I I think the, you know, we've, there's a combination here and I don't know where it is, but obviously like postmodernism is not the only thing influencing our current state of things. I think there's also a desire for a socialist kind of, um, ran, like a, a desire to replace what we currently have with a socialistic, communistic kind of um, society. Uh, they view that, they legitimately view that, at least like the founders of Black Lives Matter view that as a, as a goal um, to, to become cultural Marxists, right? I mean, they are cultural Marxists and to create a society in which uh, there's, total equality, right? Uh, which is, again, uh, an impossible standard or goal. No culture has ever achieved that. And and to to assume that we can is, it's really ultimately just going to create more, more chaos and, uh, and more tension because we're, we're just constantly pushing back on whoever's in power trying to lower them so that others below can come up. But, you know, who loses in that is the culture. <laughs> uh, well, love you know. love yeah. I mean, do you, do you want to share anything about a, just being a pastor too? I mean, you know, as you're uh, any, um, I should say this, I, I, I do want to read the two principles and then I want to ask you a question about just you as a pastor. Yeah. Um, I mean, the principles are, and we're going to go over this a lot. Yeah, let's go. Week. Let's go into that. Yeah, the principle. The first one is radical skepticism about whether objective knowledge or truth is obtainable. That's the first principle. We're going to be talking that, repeating that quite a bit. So it's radical skepticism, <laughs> not just skepticism. Mm-hmm. Radical. It doesn't exist. Uh, number two, it's a belief that society is formed on systems of powers, power and hierarchies. So that is that's postmodernism defined right there. Skepticism of about objective knowledge. So again, my lived experiences or your lived experiences experience, you can't trump mine. But second, it's formed on power and hierarchies. So if you're lower on the hierarchy, your tr- your voice trumps those over uh, on top of the hierarchy. So it's a switch. So which and the four major themes are the blurring of boundaries. Um, which basically language, uh, that's very important when it comes to language. Uh, well, the power of language, excuse me. And then the second one is power of language. Third is cultural relativism. And fourth is a loss of the individual and the universal. Um, but we don't have to go through all of those. We, we, but the, you know, that basically the blurring of the boundaries is just that objective truth and knowledge uh, are just not possible. Mm. As we've already said, um, the power of language, that's really going to be Foucault. So we're going to really look at discourses that construct knowledge. So how are you playing your knowledge games? How do you construct your speech and phenomena? How do you deconstruct? So he's going to be really focusing on words. So congresswoman mm-hmm. goes to congressperson. That's that's mm-hmm. all postmodernism. You know, a men to an a women, a woman. 
just happened today. I mean, this is all over the place, you know, so don't call yeah. me congresswoman, call me congressperson, all of that. That's all power of language, constantly yeah. you know, changing the pronouns, all of that. Number three, cultural relativism, which is what we just talked about. And then then four, the loss of the individual. So what what the beauty of liberalism, the beauty of Western values, which is what cynical theories is really trying to attack is that I think that's the key right there is the loss of the individual. So mm -hmm. as a psychiatrist, as a psychologist, one of the things I look at is the the sovereignty, not the sovereignty, but the locus of control for the individual. And I won't go too much in depth about that, but how this person, what, how can this person stop blaming, you know, the outside forces and take responsibility for himself or herself. And so the loss of the individual is going back to the kind of the feminist mindset, which is we have to change the whole culture. And then when we change the culture, the individual then can adapt inside that culture and succeed. So um, that's all I'm going to say about the chapter because just for the, but I would love to hear you and your thoughts. I mean, just for you as a pastor, what are your struggles? What do you see? And um, what, what are, yeah, I don't know if you want to share your heart. There. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, I, um, I appreciate that. I think what I would say is for the most part, you know, Christian, at least conservative Christianity, as opposed to progressive Christianity, really doesn't buy into most of this, right? Postmodern uh, ideology. There's nothing about it that that really resonates with the Christian. Now, a, a Christian would, a progressive Christian might say, well, we can do something with the narrative. We can listen to those who are oppressed. We can listen to the the those who are kind of um, uh, who have been taken advantage of, and we can elevate their story, right? We can elevate their lived experience and give them a platform in which to speak to the community of, of, of saints. Um, I don't, I don't do that. I, I, I think, um, the, what I want to elevate is the word of God. I want, I want to elevate a, uh, some biblical principles and some ideas about showing compassion and, and love and helping those who are in need, but not to the idea that we would elevate those, the, um, the power or authority of those in need above others. It's, it's actually, that's discrimination. That's to say that we should remove, you know, we, it's, it's the concept of putting the, the, the person who places the most in the offering, give them a place at the front of the church. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's that in an opposite way. It's like giving someone who's in the lowest position this uh, place of power, which I think is, is just an, a discrimination. It's, it's another method of discrimination. We need to be recognizing that, no, they have a place and they belong and they should be a part of the discussion that we're having together. And we're all submitting under the, under the authority of Christ and his headship. So as we understand more of, you know, the, the truth of scripture, we can begin to apply that into our context and, it, and that will elevate our thinking to, you know, to, I, I just do, like, do you, get, do you ever get objections with, with that particular, just being comfortable in the, you know, the higher, that particular hierarchy? Well, not, I mean, I, we're a, I don't have, um, I do get objections. Yes. But, but yeah. What are their names? What are their names and addresses? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not necessarily from within the church. Like there are more <laughs> other pastors or other Christians outside of the church. I don't think they would want to, you know, I mean, if they disagreed with me on that, they would quickly find that they're not, they're not, um, 
their view is is not the one that our church takes and therefore they'll find another church that does and there's plenty of them out there unfortunately i think that that miss uh the purpose of the church um so they're not they're not speaking truth they're relativizing truth and they're they're taking an approach that sort of like let's just listen to anyways i you know it's like the bible study you go there was a time where it was like i don't want to go to a bible study because it's like no one knows what they're talking about but everyone wants to talk <laughs> yeah right and yeah so, you remember all the pressure you had to put on yourself just to say the most spiritual give the most spiritual right answer. yeah i remember that you know it had yeah. to like end my, my tone had to be like really you know sanctimonious oh, yeah. and it's like just think about what this is jesus anyway jesus is doing in my heart right now well uh, Monday night style, yeah Monday night Bible study, especially it was really hard when you had like oh, a really yeah. huge crush on the girl, you know, that was um, <laughs> really hoping. Yeah, I was really hoping I had the most spiritual point in the room, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, I was God. single, young single man at twenty. Got some attention. Twenty-two to twenty twenty-seven. <laughs> Very <Right>. frustrated. <laughs> some hard years. <laughs> so, anyway, well, I yeah, I did want to also say in, within the context of the church, there is a there is a, a bit of a threat in um, in that there's an adoption or there's an acceptance of, there's this assumption that we can kind of take some lessons from postmodernism and apply them within the church. So there is a, uh, J James K. A. Smith wrote the book, um, Who's Afraid of Postmodernism? And in fact, we read that, I read it in seminary, um, I believe it was in seminary. It might have been just after seminary, um, and I and at the time I didn't really understand what was what he was doing. But there's a great. Um, I, I'll actually share this because I think it's um, it, it's a helpful little. And I know we're we're about done, but I just want to share <clears throat> this. Can you see that? This review oh, of wow. who's afraid of postmodernism. It's from the Westminster Theological Journal from 2007. So it goes back to then, but James Smith yeah. um, really presents, uh, he, he pushes back, his, his thought is that really what we've done is, is we have taken these slogans of the postmodernists, Derrida, Lyotard, and Foucault, we've kind of created them into these bumper sticker slogans, and then we reject the bumper sticker without really understanding what we're rejecting. So Derrida, there's nothing outside the text. Postmodern, uh, Leotard is postmodernism is incredulity toward meta-narratives. We've been talking about that, right? This uh, rejection of the main overarching uh, universal narrative. Um, and then power is knowledge is uh, Foucault. And so the book is trying to say, we really aren't understanding these guys if we only take those mottos, we're taking them out of context. And so he he approaches them and, and tries to say there's there's actually some um, some value for the Christian, but but what he ultimately does is he takes the concepts of you know like for instance this idea of there's nothing outside of the text, and he says that like Christians we um, we can rely upon the community for interpretation more than we do. And ultimately what that is, is a rejection of, um, of our hermeneutic that 
has been adopted or the grammatical historical hermeneutic. This idea that the grammar means something and that the historical context in which the author was writing from, as well as the audience that he was writing to, is that has to be where we start. We start yeah. from that yeah. context. Oh, and then from there, we begin to apply it, right? We can begin to apply it. Really, I would say you go historical grammatical or grammatical historical interpretation toward a redemptive historical interpretation. So you understand mm. where this is in the place in, in biblical theology. Then you can begin to apply it to our modern situation, our modern circumstances and context. And, uh, but it's sort of a rejection of that. And it's, a, it's the assumption that really all that matters is our interpretation of it for today, yeah. uh, the huh. historical context. So huh. to me, there's some, there's some danger in, sorry, I was, I was going to try to find a quote from the, from oh, the that's okay. yeah. article, but you could do it next. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Just to recommend the article and, and encourage people to, to look at that. I think some of the ideas of James Smith are definitely influencing pastors. And um, and so postmodernism has kind of gone to church. In fact, I think that's what he calls, that. what the subtitle of the book is, uh, Postmodernism Goes to Church. And he's saying we can apply some of this stuff. I think that's dangerous. And unfortunately, it's opened the door for our current situation more. Oh, so, yeah, I didn't anyways. know James Smith was open to postmodernism. I had no idea about that. Yeah, that's fascinating. I always thought he was much more of a kind of old, old school sound PCA guy or something. <laughs> I don't know why I thought that. <laughs> yeah. I uh, do. Well, have to, well, um, I know you got to go. Yeah. Was, uh, this is great. Fun. This is awesome. We'll, yeah. We'll pick up next, with next week. Yeah. Next what's, what's next week's chapter? What is it? Um, what's the, what's the name of it? Your audience. You make me get the book. No, I got it right here. It is going okay. to be folks. We won't do every chapter. No. And uh, this is postmodernism's applied turn, which we probably started to address already. But we could, yeah, making oppression real. That's where it begins to focus on a, on the power, right? The struggle for power. Okay. Um, yeah. Eventually, we'll get to. I do think we should talk about you know queer theory, um, the critical race theory, gender studies. Those yeah. are really the. I think that the, would be good. Yeah, at least those, and then social justice in action. And because uh, yeah. we're going to have to be prepared for the next four years. For sure. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I think this will be good. Good help to at least. Yeah. Try. Please like subscribe, it. everyone. And uh, yes, so that we can at least a review so that we could. Yeah. And so we could at least uh, buy ourselves a cup, one cup of coffee. We still <laughs> <laughs> we get no money from this. We, yeah, no, we don't. We are losing money fast. <laughs> <laughs> one day. Right, one day we could pay for it. Um, all right. Thanks, everyone. Yeah, for listening. All right. Have fun with Cross. <laughs> okay. What? Sorry. Thanks. Bye. Bye. See ya.